We are on. We are live. Is the mic on? Thumbs up. Everybody says great. As this thing is being recorded, I don't know if you've seen these videos on, on our YouTube channel or not. I think all of them have this little countdown timer. And like in the, in the assembly, it'll, you know, four minutes and 18 seconds as people are milling around. If I'm have I'm watching, you know, on YouTube, you know, I say, oh yeah, there's Keith, there's Amber, you know, pointing out all of our friends down there. And we're, you know, participating in the worship remotely, which is not ideal, but it's a thing, right? Um, July 9th, 1981, 40 years and two days ago, I became a Christian. It was a Thursday, and I remember this because Wednesday we had a youth Bible study devotional looking at the book of James. And in James it says, uh, those of you who know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, it's a sin. That's my paraphrase of it. But that was the passage, part of that. And I thought to myself, I've grown up in the church. I've grown up going to Sunday school. I go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's how our family did it. And yet I had not been baptized for the remission of my sins. I had not come into contact with the blood of Jesus through that way, right? And so that July 8th, after that lesson, it kind of, I was thinking about it, and, and July 9th, I said, hey, I, I got to do something about this. Funny story, years later, when I met my, my fiance at the time, her grandparents, okay, we were at, uh, at the university, we're waiting at her dorm for her grandparents to come in, her grandmother comes in, grabs her of her hand, and looks at her, and goes, oh, and they go off to one corner, and her grandfather takes me by the hand to the other corner of the lobby. He sits me down, and he says, son, are you a Christian? Yes, sir, I am. Son, what kind of Christian are you? Well, I was baptized on July 9th, 1981. I was, if you go to this Church of Christ at home, when I hear school, I go to the College Church of Christ, and he says, oh, you were baptized in 81? He says, well, who baptized you? We all called this guy Monkey, okay? So I'm trying to impress my, my wife's fiance's grandfather. Oh, monkey baptized me. Well, and his quote, who baptized? Okay, Steve was his real name, but who baptized Steve? And, you know, kind of like really wanting to see to the best of his ability, am I on solid footing or am I not as a young 20-ish, 22-year-old man, you know? And we can all look back at our lives when we were 20 years ago. For some of y'all, it's closer than it is for me, all right? But, you know, we look back on that and say, you know, how have we grown? How have we changed? What have we learned? What do we do different? But July 9th, 1981 was a Thursday, which means it was a Friday. the 11th was a Saturday. The 12th, 40 years ago tomorrow, will have been the first time that I partook of the Lord's Supper. And that's what this class is about, talking about the Lord's Supper. We're in the series, Red Letter, Red Letter Words of Jesus, the or if you have a red letter edition Bible, 
They have the words that, that Jesus is attributed with saying in a different color. Today we've got these rainbow Bibles that have different colors of inks for different topics. They're fantastic. But red letter, that's an old way of saying we believe these are the words that Jesus spoke. And for the most part, I agree with that, all right? We're going through, what, 12 or 13 series is. We switched a couple of them around because it made sense to do that. Now here, July 11th, Institution of the Lord's Supper, asking ourselves, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, does it still apply today? I think that's a good question to ask. As we look at these teachings of Jesus, are they relevant today? Now, spoiler, I'm going to say yeah, okay, I think so. But it's always good to stop and let's look back at where some of these things came from. So we're talking about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And with most of the classes that I try to do, I try to have some sort of dedication with it. It's a good idea when we're studying Scripture to share that with somebody else. So if you're willing to think about someone that you can see this week, that you can call this week, that you can get in touch with in the next couple of days, to say, hey, we were, we were talking about the Lord's Supper in church, and let me tell you something that I learned that I didn't know. Or let me tell you something I was reminded of. Share that information with somebody else. Studying the Bible is a good thing, and it shouldn't stop with us, right? So if you dedicate that to someone take time this week to, to get in touch with them. Let's have a moment of prayer. Almighty God, as we open up your scripture, as we look at the words of your son, as we look at the words of the apostles, as we look at the words that you gave to Moses, as we look at the testimony of early Christians, as we look at the testimony of uh, modern things going on in the United States, as we look at this ritual, this rite, the ceremony called the Lord's Supper, help us to, to learn and to add to what we already know and to not be satisfied with where we are in our appreciation of, of the sacrifice of your Son. And it's through Him that we pray. Amen. When you think about the Lord's Supper and on that little, you've got the little printout of the thing there, list these three passages because these are the three areas in the Gospels where Jesus does this, okay? We'll start by looking at the first two. We'll read them back to back. They're going to be almost cut and paste, as we would say today, right? Copy and paste. We wouldn't cut and paste. They're almost identical. We're going to save Luke for later on, okay? Because Luke is a little, it throws a curveball for us, and most evangelicals don't understand why a curveball got thrown in Luke, but there's a funny story from a background. If I remember, I'll tell you about it. But we're also going to pull in some other things, all right? Exodus chapter 12 lays the foundation biblically for what Jesus was doing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all right? We'll look at Acts chapter 20 to ask, did they continue it after the death of Jesus? We'll look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, which has an impact on how Luke 22 played out. And then we'll finish scripturally with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is my, oh wow, I, I just love that passage in its context. And that's a typical passage that's read at the Lord's Supper time in, in the church. These are all fairly familiar with this. Right? If you're taking notes, you're going to have a good time with this, okay? Let's look at Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, the context is the people of Israel have been in 
Egyptian captivity. God is speaking to Moses. He says, I've heard my people crying. I'm going to get my people out of there, right? With mighty acts, mighty wonders. We're, going to, we're literally going to put the fear of God in Egyptians, right? So Moses, Moses is told, this day is going to be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now, I don't know if you can tell on the screen here or not, I'm using the New American, it's a great translation. You see this little italicized word right here? Sometimes translating from Hebrew to English or from Greek to English or anything into English, the translators need to add some words to make it more readily understandable. So all the italicized words said, we need this to make it good English. It's not necessarily adding or taking away from the Scripture, but when you're dealing with language to language, sometimes you've got to make a little reader helps, okay? Sometimes I agree with their additions. Sometimes if you take the additions out, it may take on a little more depth, all right? And I think we'll see some of that in a little bit, if I remember to highlight it. So this is what's going on, right? This is the background of the story we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke. As a permanent ordinance, all generations, I don't know how many generations passed from Moses to Jesus, but they're still doing it, right? Seventy generations? I, I don't know. I, I don't know, okay? So now let's take a look at how this generations later. Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. Now, this, they say, hey, where do we go to celebrate the Passover? He says, go into town. You'll find somebody. There's a room prepared. We're going to get it. All right, that's the background. So they're in this Passover celebration. While they're eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my The italics. What did he give to them? The translator of the New American Standard here says he gave them a cup. But this word it he took a cup, gave them thanks, he gave to them, saying, now there's some archaeology evidence that might influence what size this cup is. It is a pitcher or is it a one ounce thing? All right. And there's a there's some theory behind this that I think is beautiful. Mark's account, while they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing it, broke and gave it to them and said, take, this is my bread. He'd taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Almost copy and paste, right? I can't see any substance and difference between the Matthew and the Mark account, right? If you pick some word orders, I'm, I'm good with that, but they're, they're essentially the same. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he Passovering? What is this thing all about? Remember the Exodus thing says keep this for, for generations as a permanent ordinance? If you look at Exodus chapter 12, it lays out 
this is where the tenth plague is about to happen, the death of the firstborn. And God instructs Moses, and Moses is getting the word out to the people. says, this month is going to be the first month of the year for you. All right? it, I think at that time it was called Abib. Uh, later on it becomes the month of Nisan. It's the same month. For us it corresponds to about March, April time period. All right? So their start of the year was Nisan the 1st, whereas ours is three or four months earlier, January the 1st. But they said this month is going to be the first month for you. On the 10th day of this month, while they're still in captivity, you guys go take lamb from the flock. It needs to be a one-year-old, unblemished male. There's some parameters about it. But on the 10th day of the month, you bring that lamb into your house. Right? And you keep it there until the 14th day of the month. So that lamb has been in your house for four days. Right? On the 14th day of the month at twilight, you take that lamb to the, the threshold of your house and you slit its throat. And you let the blood pour out over the steps going into your house and you you collect that blood and you you take a branch of hyssop and you put the blood on the door frame right and you can read all this in Exodus chapter 12 you slaughter the lamb at twilight put the blood on the post then you roast it and eat everything don't leave nothing left and if anything is in the morning I think you got got to burn it don't leave anything behind Um, you get one lamb per household but what if your household is too small to eat a whole lamb says, invite the neighbors over. You make sure you have enough people in your house to consume this whole lamb, right? Don't leave anybody out of it. Roast it, eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And the thing I didn't really realize until rereading this is they continued eat, eating leavened bread. So we see in the New Testament something about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was a week-long event. The first day would have been this ceremony, but they kept it up for seven days eating unleavened bread. What very few, a very small number percentage-wise of Christians, and I'm going to use the umbrella term, just people who say they believe in God and Jesus, all right? Most of us don't understand covenant theory. Have you all even heard those words put together? I've got a series of classes. I love teaching. It's probably, to me, the most thing that changed my life the most was dealing with a a series on covenant concepts. And what's happening right here in Exodus chapter 12 is according to archaeologists, sociologists, historians, all these people that that research old times, all right, anthropologists, they all point to this ceremony being the oldest religious ceremony known to man. And it's not pointing to Exodus chapter 12. It predates Exodus chapter 12. It predates Abraham. Evidence of this type of ceremony exists in virtually every community in the world. If you read Through the Dark Continent, you know, uh, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, that book, you see evidence of it there in Africa. We had this type of thing happening in the United States involving human sacrifice, after the Civil War. All goes back to something called a threshold covenant. And I would love to take two or three weeks just to explore that and open it up because it is beautiful and powerful. But it was known to those people. And so God says to Moses, you're going to do this threshold activity. You're going to do this threshold ceremony. But I'm going to make some changes to it. Because traditionally in a threshold covenant, a threshold ceremony, you'd sacrifice the animal, let the blood flow off, and then you'd give the animal to the neighbors. 
and they would rejoice with you because an important visitor was coming. That's what this meant. And you put the blood on the door so that everyone would know you had somebody special there. Somebody special is coming. So in Exodus chapter 12, God says to His people, do a threshold ceremony. But we're going to make some little bit of changes to it because the whole nation is doing it. You guys need to eat the food. We're going to add bitter herbs to it because it's going to represent our enslavement, our, our, our bad times. We're going to change regular bread to unleavened bread because you've got to wear, dress you know, ready to go. Boom, we're, going to, we're getting ready to go. He, he changes this well-established, well-defined, well-known ceremony and says, let's make it mine. Let's make it mine. So when Jesus does it in Matthew, he's not inventing something new. Very rarely do you find God inventing something new that no one knew about. He says, you're fully aware of this. Let's add a holy dimension to it. And so he slightly changes what they would have known, all right? And then they do this for seven days. Um, how often did the Jews do this? You can say once a year, right? On the 10th of Nisan to the 14th to the 20th. This happened once a year, okay? And so there are people who say, well, if the Jews do it once a year, then we should do it once a year. I mean, that's a, a logical conclusion if you don't read the rest of the Because where do we see that the Christians did it more than once a year? On the first day of the week, somewhere in Acts. I mean, this pop quiz, everybody. Ah, right. Uh, actually, if some of you think in Acts chapter 20, around verse 6 and 7, is that what we're thinking here, right? I love this passage for a couple of reasons. So we sailed from Philippi after the, after the days of the unleavened bread. This is the seven-day thing, all right? So at least a week after the Passover. We sailed from there and came to them at Troas within about five days. We stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. At least being a week after the Passover, right? Maybe two weeks, maybe a month, but it wasn't the 10th of Nisan. It was some other day. So now I'm going to speculate that as a biological Jew, Paul would have kept the Passover because that's from that genealogic lineage, that's their deliverance. They were the ones who were tasked with bringing Jesus. And bring, so I'm going to speculate that. I can't say for sure, but he, he, he ties it down to us here. Well, Luke is writing this, right? He ties it down saying, after the Passover, we're going on our journeys and we're Troas for a few days and did they when they got there did they do this do they have communion right now this uh, breaking bread this typically when it's when it's used in a church context it typically refers to communion going to your house is typically used as, as sharing a meal so there's there's that but I'm thinking this is talking about we waited until the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper now Fortunately, we have the internet today because Jesus was crucified, what, AD 30-ish, right? Uh, 30, somewhere in there, in the 30s, okay? And I go, when did Paul and them get 
to Troas. And according to the internet, this is around 57 AD. So this is about 25 years later, okay? So 25 years, this is within a lifetime, right? The, the Christians are doing this as near as we can tell on the first day of the week. And as near as we can tell, they didn't come together just this one first day. Near as we can tell, this was a regular habitual thing. Does that make sense? Crazy? We're going along smooth. Um, so Jesus did it. Jesus transitioned this Jewish edict from a Jewish thing to where as we are children of God, Christians are children of God, we have our own elements of that. Yes? Speculation again, but Paul uh, you know, took the Nazarene vow. He did that. He was present on, he wanted to go to Pentecost bad. So I'm saying he was he was definitely doing some of these Jewish traditions. I really believe that. And I, I do think he obviously was entered in on doing the first day of the week, every week. That's Luke's recording. But uh, we do know that he did some of those things after he yeah, and when I was 10, 12, 14, I remember there was a gentleman who uh, had been raised Catholic, and he decided that he needed to be fully immersed, baptized into the church. And so he's there in the baptistry up front, and the officiant was, you know, we're here today with Steve, and Steve's studying the Bible. And he's just, and right before Steve was baptized, he did the sign of the cross. And my little 12, 14-year-old mind says, wait a minute, that doesn't count, right? It doesn't count, you've got to do it again, right? Um, I think there are residual things we bring with us that may bring comfort. I'm going to ask you guys for graciousness as I open cans of worms, because we... We all have our things that we're passionate about. And now that man became a faithful member. And he, he, that was the way he expressed something pious. I, uh, did it count? Yeah. And you were a gentleman that went to the pond. They said, hey, man, Joe, you've got the good thing. Joe came in the morning. They said, you got your wallet in your pocket. He said, I want my wallet to be baptized. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, we, we want our wallet. Now, we don't want our cell phones to be baptized, do we, right? We don't want that. So, um... Hey, this is conjecture on my part, but I think he might, you know, some of these things that he, you know, he always talks about Paul. He, Paul always talked about through his ministry, you know, of how he was, you know, certain, he was a certain way to serve people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he probably took these moments, at, at, like this Feast of Unleavened Bread and these other... Jewish things mm -hmm. that were, I don't want to call them ceremonial, but ceremonial type The, the festivals yeah. and the, yeah. yeah. Festivals of things to use them as teaching moments. Yeah. Because throughout his whole ministry, what was his thing that he always tried to hammer on, hammer to those, the folks he was talking to, the old law versus the new. Yeah. And, you know, he always talked about that. His thread through all of his letters, all of his teachings was about how, you know, there's better things out here versus what you were under. Mm -hmm. And I was under it with you. Yeah. I still practiced, you know, I practiced it. I knew, you know, mm -hmm. all of those things. I was, 
know, he called himself a Jew's Jew, and you know, he was all of that stuff. And so, I'm really making it basic here. But what I'm saying is, I think he may have used those things for teaching moments as well. Yeah. So you if you know, yeah. to be able to show the difference mm -hmm. in what they're doing and what they, you know, what they need to do now. Just, yeah, if you're watching online, hi mom. Um, uh, comment was that we often see Paul comparing and contrasting the old law with the new, and that he would often use his his history, his personal and his people's history, as a teaching moment to demonstrate better the new law. And you know, Hebrews is like Christ is so much better than the old. Law. Yeah, yeah. So we have about 20 minutes and I knew this would be about where we were at this point. We're going to get to some visual aids. But this, this AD 57, all right, 25-ish years after Jesus died, did the church continue to meet together on the first day of the week? Did the church fathers carry this on? Did we think it's important? There are two ancient documents that, that you can find. One written around 130 and one written 155, all right? I tend towards the 155 document rather than the 130 for personal reasons, but they're two different documents. There's a fellow named Justin Martyr. You guys ever heard of Justin Martyr? Have we heard of them? Don't know much, all right? Justin Martyr wrote an apology in 155-157 AD. Apology to us means, sorry I stepped on your toes, right? Apology to them meant, here is the reason for what we do. And in his first apology, basically Christians had been uh, belittled, befuddled, bad about because of all their weird practices. And Justin Martyr says, let me just write up an apology to explain that what we're doing is not so weird. It's not so, I'm going to, I'll, not so left wing. You know, it's, it's not out in left field. It's, it's normal, it's rational, it's understandable. So Justin Martyr, his writings give us an insight into that first and second century Christianity, all right? Now at the end of the first apology, chapter 65, 66, 67, you can find line if you want. He has some really good good, uh, good information for us. And this is not necessarily doctrinal. This is not necessarily teaching. This is reflecting what was going on at the time. Okay? It says those, let's see, talk about the, the worship service. There is then brought to the president of the brethren bread and a cup, a, a cup of wine mixed with water. He taking them gives praise and glory to the Father through the name of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Then those who are called by us deacons give each of those present to partake of the bread and the wine mixed with water. And to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. This is 155, 156, 157 A.D. talking about what one of the pieces of a traditional service would be. What's he talking about? Sometimes questions I ask are going to be obvious, and when I'm teaching my, my juniors and seniors, I throw out an obvious question. They always think, is this a trick? What's going on? Because they know that I ask seemingly obvious questions, but I design it. No, this is 
Justin, Mar Justin Martin is explaining what they're doing. Now, I love this because a couple weeks ago I was out in the hallway down there and I came across this edition of the Gospel Advocate. The Lord's Day, and I thought, huh, maybe there's some information. And it brought up this Justin Martyr article. What is, okay, let's take ourselves out of the equation and let's talk about Bible churches of Christ. What's the problem on the screen behind me? Wine. This is a problem, right? This is a, now what did they do with it? They mixed it with water. Why did they mix it with water? Okay, to dilute it. Okay, make it go further. Um, and, and I've thought about this. Why would they mix wine with water? And, I, and in my, my thinking, I'm thinking when they when they punctured Jesus' side, what flowed from it? Blood, water and blood. Wine, blood, water. Maybe that's it. No, that wasn't it either. Okay. Um, maybe to dilute the strength of it, right? So how much water do you put and how much wine do you put? 50-50? One third, two thirds? Three to, three to one, four to one? Now, okay, oh my goodness. Guys, I'm, I'm asking you for graciousness here. I'm bringing history, okay, not my opinion. The Greeks tended to dilute their wine four parts water, one part wine. The Romans tended to dilute their wine three parts wine. In some rabbinic circles, they would dilute their wine ten parts water. In rabbinic circles, it was one part water, one part wine. What's going on? As near as I can tell, chapter 3-ish I think it's in Colossians it says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian y'all know what a Scythian is? think about a Viking on steroids Scythians were known for being barbaric doesn't even get what they're known for they would take the skulls of their enemies and drink from them Scythians did not dilute their wine. So, as a business professor, if I'm in the wine trade, do I want to sell my wine to the Greeks and Romans so for every bottle they're going to get three or four bottles out of it? Or do I want to sell to the Scythians who are going to buy four bottles, right? It makes sense to sell over there, but trading with the Scythians, you do, ah, is dangerous, okay? But in the Bible it says, even people who come from the most brutal Alcoholic backgrounds can be saved. Wow. Okay, I think that's beautiful. But the thing is, at this point, they diluted it with water. Yes, it was alcoholic wine. Sorry, you know, but that's a problem for us, okay? Um, as it continues, and this food, this is the next chapter, and this food is called among us, it has a Greek word there, but it's called the Eucharist. No. He's not right in England. You've got to understand that yep. before we move on here. True. I'm not saying alcohol was not used. Okay. So I'll be very clear on that. But the word wine that is used here is not necessarily always alcoholic. Yeah, the word so wine. The word yeah. in the New Testament mm -hmm. that is used 
is not always alcohol. It yeah. could be, it could not be. But yeah. we translate it into English as wine. And, and do fruit of yeah. the vine yeah. or grape juice. They just put wine for everything. And, and I, I like the fruit of the vine concept. Right. All right. I like that better. Um, that's the idea. I, I yeah. just want to make sure that we're clear that I'm not saying that we there was not alcohol going on used. But we do need to take it with a grain of salt with regard to every time the word wine is used, we cannot just jump to say that it's alcoholic. Yeah. Um, is that true? Uh, uh, Mom, uh, what was said is that we can't be 100% certain that every time the word wine is used in these ancient texts is talking about 20 proof alcohol. I don't know, you know, 20% alcohol, right? It, it, it was a, oftentimes, I'm going to use the word oftentimes, it was used to describe any grape beverage. How's that? All right. I don't know if it would. would But we'll, and we'll see, you'll see in Scripture times where it is specifically called out as alcohol, right. and you'll see times where the door's open. Right. I think two, two times that I can think of in Scripture where it's, now, not from a, uh, don't be a drunkard, we all, okay, we're, I don't want to go there. That's obviously not that. But, uh, but wine the wine, yeah. Now, yeah, well, well, I, I, yeah, I want. Yeah. Now, there is one place in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one, that says, "Oh, I'm lamenting over Jerusalem. Everything is going bad. Even your wine is diluted." So, in Isaiah chapter one, this idea of diluting wine is not looked on favorably. Now, we have. I don't know, I'm making up a number 20 verses that say it's not for kings to, to partake of wine, you know, don't get drunk on wine, which, you know, with debauchery. That's a whole other element, and that plays into where we are today, I believe. I don't want to chase rabbits. No. That's not a rabbit because that's what I'm stuck on, okay? Uh, so looking at, at more of this, this food, which is called the Eucharist, um, uh, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes the things which we teach are true, and who have been washed with the washing that is and who is living as Christ has enjoined. In the early church, they would have been called a closed communion fellowship. If you weren't baptized into the Lord's church, you would not have taken the elements. And if you weren't trying to live right, you would not partake of the Lord's elements, right? Uh, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Doug, man, cut it off, right? It's time to sit down. We've got to go, right? No, as long as, long as they could, they're reading. What are the, the memoirs of the apostles? The Gospels, right? We're reading the Gospels. We're reading the letters. We're reading the prophets as long as time permits. And when do they do it? Every Sunday. This is 150 years, right, later on. We know it's ingrained in us. Sunday is the day on which we our common, our common assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So in the year 155, it was common knowledge that we meet on Sundays because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. 
Do we have book, chapter, and verse that says, Thou shalt hereby meet Sunday mornings at 9 for Bible class and 10 for... No. The evidence from Acts chapter 20, the evidence from the early Christians screams to us that this is why we meet today. And one of the things we do today is partake of the Lord's Supper. Like I said, 40 years ago, tomorrow for the first time. Justin Martyr, I don't know exactly his full background other than he was, a, a, because he put this document together, he wrote something that, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I always saw Justin Martyr because he was martyred. I just think that was his last name, okay? I have in my hands here a Jewish prayer book. As my wife says, Dave, you're ridiculous, all right? I like looking at how the Jews did things and how the Jews do things. It helps shed light on my understanding of Christian stuff. Okay, I don't believe that Gentile bound to the Jewish law. I think all that's done away with. But I think we can learn something from this. On the first day of the Passover celebration, it's the 14th of Nisan. Um, this is. Uh, I don't know if it's a prayer or not, but it's a, it's, a, it's a statement in their book that says, we are slaves because freedom means more than broken chains. Where there's poverty and hunger and homelessness, there's no freedom. Where there's prejudice and bigotry and discrimination, there's no freedom. Where there's violence and torture and war, there's no freedom. And where each of us is less than he or she might be, we are not free. Not yet. are free, Scythian or barbarian, and as long as we are dividing ourselves along those lines, we have not achieved the unity of purpose. And as they enter their period, their seven-day remembrance of their deliverance, they realize that sometimes chains take a different form today than they did for their ancestors. If you're taking notes, I'm going to want you to write four things down. If you're not taking notes, use your noggin, okay? In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, this lays out how some of the order that the Jews did Passover in, okay? In Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, God says, Say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will rescue you from the burden of Egypt. I will save you from their enslavement. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you as a people for myself. This is laying the groundwork for getting the people out of Egypt. Rescue, save, redeem, take. Rescue, save, redeem, take. Remember we talked about the Gospel of Luke throwing us a curveball when it comes to communion? we got a picture being taken. You got it? You good? Okay. If you look at the standard way that they did the Passover celebration, it involved four cups of wine. I'm going to use a generic term, wine, all right? And what they do with each thing, they have an activity 
talk about something, talk about something. They eat a meal here and then pick up the last two cups, all right? There's a meal eaten between saving and redeeming. So when Jesus says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, I uh, say I'm not going to eat it again until I have the kingdom of God. He took a cup, gave thanks, said, take it, share it among yourselves. When he'd taken some bread, gave, broke, he broke and said, this in remembrance of me. Then at the end, he does it again, all right? He does it twice. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup. What cup has he taken? The third cup. He had two cups before they ate, two cups after. He ate supper. What cup was it? Redemption. And I'm imagining him, what they would have done, they would have had a, a pitcher as they refilled each other's glasses of wine and water. You know. Imagine him saying, this is being poured out for you as my blood is about to be poured out. I can just visualize that happening. So how, he uses this word new covenant because in Jeremiah it says a day is coming when I'm going to do away with this covenant because you guys don't deserve it. New covenant's coming. Jesus says, I'm bringing a new covenant. Oh my goodness. I wanted to give us a test. What's the story, all right? These are... Which of these things are acceptable to God to use in a Lord's Supper situation? Don't answer this, all right? Because uh, um, Can you use a cup of water? There was a time in the 1860s when the women's... Christian temperance movement came about because there was so much bad things happening as a result of alcoholism in the United States that there were Methodist women who refused to take the Lord's Supper because it had wine in it. And they refused to touch a glass of wine. A glass of, so, do you do water in that standpoint? Do you delete, dilute the water with wine? One to one, three to one, five to one, ten to one, what do you do? Uh, of course, we all know the scriptural juice, right? What's the scriptural juice? Welch's, right? Yeah. When we're meeting at home, we drink from Welch's, right? My wife says, hey, David, go get stuff from the store to get that. And I look at the Welch's, and you know what? This has 100% grape juice, but if you look at the ingredients, it says grape juice from concentrate, uh, absorbic acid, vitamin C, citric acid. This has more stuff in it. No. Well, no, all right? Um, oh, and don't even get me started on the grape value, right? Same stuff, dollar cheaper. We're not cheapening the blood of Jesus. So I found... Um, and there's this, Kadim, which is orthodox. It's blessed. So this probably would have been close to what Jesus had, something, something orthodox, something blessed. Um, if you come to my house on a Sunday, I'm going to be using this. This is, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes, this is kosher, all right? Yeah. This right here is organic. It's only grape juice. They squoze it, put it in a bottle. If you come to my house, this is what I think you should use. Do we use that in this building? Is it okay if we use this in this building? Is there some leeway with what we do here? Um, can we pop a grape? And yet a new Christian once said to me, I was sitting there and I saw a lady in communion pop a grape in her mouth. Is that okay? Can't we use grape Kool-Aid, right? Um, what if, what if we have some raisins? What if these aren't available? Can we take raisins, add boiling water to it, reconstitute it, squish it, and use that? Hmm? 
what if all we have left over is a glass of grape juice from yesterday's breakfast and it's this film, can we add water to it, swirl it around and do that? My wife thinks I'm ridiculous, okay, but these are the questions that I ask. Now, or do I need to go down to the store and get something else? This is important because in 2016, um, I had a dilemma. We were, we were making this punch. 2016 Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, and our church decided to still meet at 9 and not at 2. I don't know what we do here, but on Sunday, Christmas, let's worship to the afternoon, okay? We had Christmas, the whole family together, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, we were there, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, everyone's there and are making this great bloom, which you, you slice citrus up, let it set overnight in some grape juice, then you put it in a big container and pour it. But the problem was the spigot was open or pouring it in. And I went to the refrigerator, got this bottle of Welch's out, added it to the mix. And my wife says, where's the grape juice for communion? Can you use fruit punch for communion? And fortunately, someone among our midst said, you know what? I believe we've got a bottle of wine back in the back pantry in the way back corner. Can we use that? Now, I messed everything up. It was my fault. I didn't know what to do. There are 15 Christians in the family at that point. I made 15 glasses of bloom and 15 glasses of wine. It's like, you guys help yourself. God sort it out. Ultimately, uh, we, we use grape juice today because in, in the 1920s, the Methodist Church responded to the movement of, of, of alcohol in grape juice and so say we don't we're going to authorize the use of grape juice we're going to recommend it in fact we're going to require it so mr welch thomas welch as a methodist person who felt that even touching alcohol was a sin he couldn't pat he couldn't take communion so he started this company so that we could today have non-alcoholic grape juice 1927 the union of orthodox jews in the united states and canada said we approve that batch of welches for use in the synagogues historically speaking Culture plays a role into how we, the implements we use. That is, on your table there, is some unleavened bread that I grew up with. Y'all help yourselves. You can take it in the other room if you want. And uh, I don't know if I've opened too many cans of worms, but... Uh, I thought it was cookies already. It's cookies, yeah. All right, so uh, second bell rang. I'm way out of time. I apologize. Um, <laughs>